0: We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin, and it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app. So be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code. It's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider. Like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. It's also a favorite of The Block's analyst Steven Zhang. He saves money at Chipotle every time he gets a burrito. That keeps Stephen happy, that keeps the block happy, and that keeps the crypto world informed with the best news and research in the entire market. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to what is a very special and interesting episode of The Scoop. We are joined by Daniel Vogel. He is the CEO and co-founder of Bitso. They are one of the largest, not only crypto exchanges, but crypto companies in Mexico and Latin America. They are backed by Coinbase and Ripple. They are known for their presence in the remittance market, and we're very excited to chat. Um, I guess the best place to start is the story we had earlier this month about the firm capturing a slice of the U.S.-Mexico remittance market in 2019 using XRP, the cryptocurrency associated with Ripple. You guys are an exchange first and foremost, but how does an exchange break into remittances? How has that played out at Bitso?
1: Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having us here. First of all, so excited to be talking to your audience. The story of Bitso, since the beginning of Bitso, we always wanted to make sure that cryptocurrencies were used for something more than just speculation. When we started the company in 2014, uh, if if you look at some of the earliest videos of us talking about Bitso, we would always talk about um, cross-border transactions and specifically remittances. Mexico is the end of the largest remittance corridor in the world, which is the United States to Mexico, where about 36 billion dollars flow from the U.S. to Mexico every single year. And we, uh, you know, the, the, the three founders of the company, we lived abroad and we had the opportunity to see the high costs involved in sending money back home. When we learned about Bitcoin. Um, And one of the things that got us very exciting is eliminating those costs. And so I would say that the DNA of Bitso since its founding has been to make crypto useful, uh, more useful than just speculating with it. And so we've always been very interested in attacking that market and that opportunity. However, I think we completely underestimated the amount of work that it would be to get to a position where you could actually start capturing the remittance market. You know, everything from infrastructure building, liquidity building, having access to um, having access or, or having regulatory clarity, working with different stakeholders to get them to be comfortable. The usability, the story of crypto, the evolution of crypto assets, you know, there's a lot of things that have to happen in order for us to have been able to capture uh, or start capturing part of the remittance corridor or flows last year. And so the the answer is, I would say, or the answer to your question, I think, is a little bit sort of the other way around. Um, is How, how do a um, uh, set of very passionate individuals who wanted to reduce the costs in remittances get into building a crypto exchange. And I think the reason why that happened is because when we acknowledged that Bitcoin could be used to solve this issue, we then realized quickly that were all these other problems that were unsolved that needed someone to solve them. And that's why we settled on uh, building an exchange in Mexico and then we've since we've expanded it to other places in Latin America. But um but we but 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 we saw that a critical piece of the puzzle was missing, which was infrastructure, regulatory clarity, and liquidity, which is what we focused on in the first four years, five years of the enterprise. And then last year we've been able to dabble into these use cases.
0: And the volumes have really spoken the volumes really speak for themselves. If you take a look at week-over-week week growth during the past five months, um, averaging out at around 18%, compared to a year ago, you saw XRP peso volumes on Bitso just under $500,000, now approaching $3.5 Talk to us a little bit about why we're seeing this type of growth, what's the catalyst behind it, and why XRP?
1: Absolutely, those are all uh, great questions. In, In
0: 2018,
1: when the Bitcoin and crypto prices bubble burst, we started looking very hard into our initiatives and we were very interested in building a business that, where we had more control of the levers. But I, What I mean by the levers is, you know, 2017, rising crypto prices, a lot of retail interest for, for crypto assets as a speculation, as an investment. And basically, it was very easy to attract customers and get revenue. When the bubble burst and the prices of crypto start dwindling down, you get into a situation where, you know, you have very little levers that you can pull. And we, want, we, we, we started to think really hard, what are the things that we could do as a business to fight that seasonality? And we've had a really long history with Ripple. We, we were one of the first Ripple gateways in In 2014, and we worked alongside with Ripple on a number of cross-border products that were definitely very early on. Um, they, were, they were too early for, for, for liquidity and for regulatory clarity for them to have made sense back in 2014 and 15. But we'd always had a very close relationship with Ripple. And, um, and we had listed XRP in 2017, and we were talking with the Ripple team about their plans and what basically, what we started finding was a very strong alignment in the sort of things that they wanted to pursue and the problems that we had been able to solve in Mexico. And we basically saw a very good fit between some of the initiatives that they had and some of the things that we were very interested in. And so we we actually had built a cross-border product that worked on top of Bitcoin. And, and and the problem that we saw was that Bitcoin had certain issues. You know, it, it takes longer to settle. The customers that are moving that money have to hold that asset for a longer period of time. And then the transaction costs of Bitcoin were also higher. And you know, for all the criticism that XRP receives in terms of its centralization and whatnot, it is actually a very phenomenal protocol. It settles very, very quickly. It, um, the transaction costs are completely negligible. And, um, and, and, and in some ways, shape, or so form, we found that some uh, financial institutions uh, were more willing to hold XRP a product, and, and transacting XRP a protocol that they sort of understood who was behind than other currencies. And so we took a very pragmatic approach and we said, let's give this a try and let's see if we can start getting product market fit. And let's build something on top of, um, of XRP, where there seems to be interested clients, um, interested partners, and where there were clear advantages on a protocol level to transmitting money using using XRP. And um, and we basically started building this product alongside with Ripple. And you know, at the end of 2018. And we did the first transactions and, and we were so interested and they were clunky and manual, and, but they were exciting. We were moving money cross border at really good rates um, and basically in a matter of seconds. And that was very exciting to us. And then 2019, we spent a long time improving that infrastructure, both on our end and on Ripple's end. Um, and, and it has allowed us to basically roll out a product that has met uh, a lot of interest and demand by by various number of customers, and and where there's a clear value proposition to the to to them, and where the and and where we're seeing this crazy growth. No, the the just just to put it into into perspective, uh, last week, uh, so the fourth week of 2020 has been our. Strongest week so far, and we transacted roughly 24 million dollars in in that week of remittances, and that is about three and a half percent of the weekly remittances that are sent to Mexico. So that that market share is growing, and and it's growing not because we're forcing anyone to use the this product. It's growing because it's resonating and it's solving real problems and it's making crypto useful, which is the core of what
0: we want to do here at BITSO, and so it's uh, incredibly exciting for us. Yeah, and in 2019, the transactions you facilitated for remittances accounted for about 2.3% of, of the market. Walk us through what it would normally look like for someone trying to send Mexico, excuse me, trying to send money from Mexico to the United States or vice versa what products are out there? What are the downsides of those products? And then what does BITSO's product look like for remittances specifically? Um, It'd be useful to sort of draw that comparison. Absolutely. So the flow is mainly
1: individuals in the United States who send money back to their family or friends in Mexico. And so the flow is people in the United States sending money to Mexico. And so the, the products that are available to them, um, you know, the, the way that this transaction actually happens is they go to a convenience store. Sometimes it's like an agent. It's an agent for a money transmitter. These You can find these in a lot of um, like supermarkets. You can find them in those stores, travel agencies. They're usually. Uh, those that are aimed towards a Hispanic population, which you find them all over the the United States. And uh, and basically, a a customer walks in and says, I want to send money to my mom or my aunt or my cousin or whoever. They provide some details um, about the recipient. And so the details can be a bank account in Mexico. They can be a physical location uh, where that cash needs to be picked up. And they obviously provide the, the details of the recipient. And they provide their own details as that remitter. And basically, at that point, the agent usually trans- uh, sends that money over to their, um, the, the, the money-transmitting entity. And so the money-transmitting entity is someone like uh, Western Union, for example, a money grant. And they turn, they in turn have a number of intermediaries in order to get that money across to Mexico. And so they have, uh, you know, usually a local bank, they have an FX broker, the FX broker then has a, a, like a transmission aggregator. And basically you go through a number of intermediaries. And all of these intermediaries take a cut and all of these intermediaries, um, take some time in moving the operation. What usually happens is that the large money transmitters, uh, they have costs of capital. Then, uh, while the money is moving from the United States to Mexico, they need to have capital available in Mexican pesos for the individuals in Mexico to be able to withdraw the funds when they want to withdraw them or, or, or claim those funds. And these costs of capital are an important part of the cost structure of these um, of these money transmitters, and so they basically take out loans to be able to cover those um, those liabilities in Mexico. And these loans in Mexico, you have much higher interest rates than in, in than in the United States. And so the the the, the current interbank, like the current um, rate in, in mexico like the risk-free rate in mexico is about 7.25 percent and you could see how those costs can quickly add up right if you if you have these very large costs of capital um, and then and then once that money finally makes it to mexico whether it's because uh, the money transmitter took a loan or because the fx transmitter um, actually delivered the money in mexico then you basically go into, uh, they can be dispersed into a bank account, or they could basically get uh, picked up in a, in a cash location. Uh, if it gets delivered to the bank account, the funds are simply transmitted to the bank account. If it gets transmitted to a physical location, then you have an individual in Mexico that physically walks to a location, hands over an ID, and then claims the funds. The part that today we've been able to, um, the, the, the product that is, that is built and that is being very successful is a product that is aimed towards these money transmitters. The company that has spoken about this publicly on their earnings call is MoneyGram. And basically, their the, the significant advantages to them in digitizing their operations. And in, in, instead of relying on sort of these FX brokers and the set of intermediaries to move the money around, you basically do this with crypto. And so the way that they do it is as soon as they receive the funds, those funds get deposited at an exchange in, that serves uh, US dollar pairs. Those dollars get turned into XRP. That XRP is then sent over to Bitso at Bitso, is then turned uh, into Mexican pesos, and then Bitso does the delivery. And so, sometimes if if, if the money transmitter has is delivering into a bank account, we basically do the delivery immediately. One of the things that Bitso has been able to build is a um, is a bridge that allows us to connect to the interbank payment system in Mexico, which allows us to do basically real-time settlement of funds, and so if we, if we have the end users or the recipient's bank account, we can send it immediately to that bank account, and if we don't, because it's going to get picked up at a cash location, we basically make a transaction to deliver those funds to the partner that's going to do the cash operation in Mexico. But this is the fact that you can move that money so quickly um, from the U.S. to Mexico and um, remove these a huge cost of capital that some of these money transmitters hold. And so the, uh, the solution is a lot better than the traditional sort of financial system. And, um, and interestingly, and more, in a sense,
0: you, you, in order to make the product a success, you had to integrate and link up with the traditional financial sector.
1: Absolutely. A huge part how did of that, the success of this product is that.
0: How did that work? Was there any sort of, you know, any sort of skepticism on the part of the various banks in Mexico with which you had to connect for that product?
1: Oh, absolutely. has taking a lot of work and a lot of effort on our side, um, engaging Various different parties, from partners to regulators. Um, you know, the, the, we spent a long time with the three uh, regulatory authorities in Mexico, which is the central bank, the Banking and Securities Commission, and the Ministry of Finance, working with them on making sure that you know we lead an operation where the, the, the risk concerns are taken into account. And so, our ability to be able to serve this market has been very strongly influenced by our ability to educate partners and regulators on our activity and getting them comfortable with what we're doing and there's always more than we can do but Um, these success cases i think are a big uh, they make a big difference with regulators because they understand that the technology can be beneficial for the end users and they can be cost saving and remittances in Mexico is a very, very big thing. And so the fact that this is happening and that crypto is being used for these transactions, is a huge positive story for the sector in Mexico and the rest of Latin America.
0: Well, that's a great place to ask my next, next question, which is about the state of crypto in Latin America and Mexico. Crypto adoption in Latin America is rising as something around the figure of 70% of the population remains unbanked. And there is the banking the unbanked opportunity. There's the remittance opportunity that we talked about. A lot of crypto firms are eyeing Latin America as their next region of growth opportunity. Huobi being one example, recently announced an exchange in Argentina Paint us, Daniel, a picture of the landscape in Mexico first, and then Latin America more broadly. Who are the players? Who are the investors? Um, do you get a sense that things are picking up and growing? What are the impediments? Give us a lay of the land. Absolutely, absolutely.
1: So, um, so in the case of Mexico, we're definitely the largest player around. Um, if I look at sort of the, the Mexican exchanges uh, by volume, I think we, we currently transact um, 96, 97% of the, of the volume in Mexico. Not the same story in other places in Latin America, but for us, Mexico is home, and it's been sort of our biggest market by far. Um, and in, in Mexico, you have very interesting adoption metrics. If you look at the stock exchange, the Mexican stock exchange, and you basically look at the number of accounts held at intermediaries, uh, like like stock brokerage accounts. Um, BigSock has almost three times as many accounts as um, there are accounts at the Mexican Stock Exchange. There are more people that held Bitcoin last year than people that held any stock in Mexico. And so you get these sort of like crazy adoption metrics. The, 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 Latin America is a very different place than the United States, or or, or Mexico, and many other countries are very different places to the, to the United States. There's very little disposable income, um, which is a big and significant difference between sort of the U.S. market and, and 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 the Mexican market. And there's very little financial education in in the region, and we spent a long time and we've been a great avenue in basically getting people to learn how what, what does it even mean to save? What does it even mean to invest in something that is not just keeping your Mexican pesos around. And and that's been a huge positive factor. The 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 fact that you can buy, you know, with a few pesos, a fraction of, of Bitcoin and just track that and look at what that could do to your um to your savings. Is for for many users, we've been sort of like the first and, and and sometimes the only mechanism that they've had to sort of dabble in this investment. Obviously, this is a great story when crypto prices are going up, and it's a little bit of a sad story when crypto prices are going down. You no, know? because you have people that don't have a lot of disposable income that are spending that money and and and, and losing part of their part of their value. You no. Know? Um, But it's it's still interesting and one of the things that we absolutely love is the amount of customers that are starting to think very differently about finance in general like in like young adults that are putting a small amount of pesos into crypto and then figuring out that there are interest bearing accounts on smart contracts that they can access and that they're playing with these things and the You know, the traction is still very, very small, but what we do see is a very important shift in the way that young adults are thinking about their money. Because suddenly, their money is something that can be used worldwide, which if you think about the world five years ago, six years ago, that was practically impossible. And so the fact that you have individuals that are starting to think like, you know what is die? What is compound? What you know? What are what, what is trading at an exchange that is located four thousand miles from where I am? That is physically located. Like pe- people are starting to interact differently with their money, and I think there's a big change underway that is going to take some time. But as these generations grow, they're going to fundamentally think about their money and finance very, very different than, you know, when I was a 20-year-old.
0: So presents... in, in Mexico, yeah. Well, I was just going to say that presents a unique opportunity for the firm. You mentioned this for many of your clients, your platform is their first interaction with any sort of investment vehicle or any sort of platform through which they can invest Many of them might not have any holdings of stock or bonds or anything like that. Bringing them on to Bitso, exposing them to the world of crypto, giving them the tools to send money around the world very quickly, that could be part one, right? Is there an opportunity for the firm to expand into other arenas as this sort of gateway drug so to speak, of investing that can lead folks in Mexico to have a more fuller, deeper financial picture?
1: Absolutely. I think that's something we're, we're actively researching and actively looking. We're starting to run a few experiments um, already to try and understand you know, the types of products that we could build and the types of bridges that we could build in order to be that gateway that you're talking about. Um, I believe that's a, a tremendous opportunity for us. And we're also, you know, super interested in, in looking for partners, you know, people that have built these products that are interested in delivering them to to the Latin American market. And and if we can play an active role there in, in sort of tying together these products and, and, and our customer base, I think that's something we would absolutely love to do. And, and we're actively exploring it but I think we, we still have a long, a long way to go.
0: What do you need to get in place before any sort of product in that vein could be launched?
1: So we always think about um, two things. One of them is regulation. So Visto right now is a regulated entity. And, um, and we need to make sure that regulators are on board with whatever type of product services we want to offer to our client base. Um, we, we have found that regulators have been you know, open-minded and been responsive to our needs, but that's always, going, that's always something that we take very seriously, obviously, and so that's one, one hurdle that needs to be cleared. And the other hurdle is probably the the most interesting one, which is just uh, building these products that resonate with the customer base, right? That the customer base understands that they can, um, that 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 they're willing to use them, that they're will, willing to experiment with it. And for that, we're starting to run a few experiments um, with sort of like um, you know cohorts of our customer base. But um, but I think what we really need to find is the products that we can launch to the entire customer base. And we're still sort of iterating and trying to find those.
0: What do those experiments look like?
1: So you take a portion of your customer base and uh, you do everything from, you know, uh, dabbling more into the payments world, like offering bill payments, offering lightning, um, the process and withdrawals, to interacting with smart contracts that allow individuals to invest their crypto and get um, and, 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 and get interest from that crypto, right? As that crypto gets loaned out to to other parties, um, we've talked about collateralized lending. We've ran experiments on collateralized lending for our customer base. And uh, I think they're sort of like the product that you see th- th- in, in the marketplace. And what we're trying to do is, you know, we already have a, a, a large customer base. And what are the things that are happening in the crypto space that we believe we can start showing our customers? And so I think there's definitely a big interest on our side to bring more of these products to our to our customer base. But it's just a little bit too early for us still to have like a very good um, like like a very good bet on what's going to be the first non-exchange product that we're going to roll out to the entire customer base.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, let's focus on the existing products going into 2020, or rather now at the beginning of 2020 and moving forward into the year. How do you expect the firm will continue to grow market share and build on top of the success of the products already launched?
1: Absolutely. The, the big focus for Victor right now is an international expansion. And so we're already operating um, in Mexico and in Argentina. And there's a few other jurisdictions that we're not publicly disclosing yet. But, um, you know, there's a number of other countries in Latin America that we're actively working on on, on building these connections that we we're talking about. We've built in Mexico and Argentina, these connections with the traditional financial sector. Um, and, and basically, you know, the, the, these remittances and these remittance product that we built in Mexico is not launched in Argentina yet. And so one of the big goals is going to get that working and, and trying to replicate the success that it's had in Mexico, in Argentina, and then in these other jurisdictions that we expand. But the, the big focus of the company right now is definitely on, on building these regulated, compliance fiat on-ramps across the different jurisdictions in Latin America in order to onboard more customers and continue to make crypto useful for, for the masses.
0: One of your investors is Pantera. Um, they're also an investor of the block. They have an interesting thesis when it comes to cryptocurrency exchanges, which is each geography, each region will have their own domestic venue, which will benefit from a deeper relationship, or rather a deeper understanding of that given client base. With that in mind, I have two questions for you. As the firm looks to expand outside of Mexico or continues to push outside of Mexico, how do you ensure that you can resonate with those new uh, customers? And at the same time, as companies outside of Latin America and outside of Mexico look to expand into the region, you know, the coin bases of the world. How do you protect your market share from that?
1: So great questions. The, the first question is, I think we're learning. Um, we've launched, a, we haven't even formally uh, done a big launch in Argentina. It's been sort of like a very quiet, we haven't done any marketing yet. Um, this is probably the first formal announcement to the media that, that we've made. Um, but, but basically, the, we're learning quite a bit. We're learning quite a bit from the Argentinian markets. We are There are definite strong differences between our, the problems that our, our customers in Mexico are trying to solve and the problems that our customers in Argentina are trying to solve. And I think the way that we need to approach this is we need to be very nimble and we need to be very close to the customer base, very close to their problems, and make sure that we replicate what we've done in Mexico in these other jurisdictions. And when I say replicate, I mean really understanding the opportunity, really understanding the customer pains, and really understanding where crypto fits in those customer pains and, and, and the opportunities that the different jurisdictions present. We definitely think that, um, you know, the larger players are going to uh, look more seriously into Latin America. We already start seeing that. We've seen large players who spent more time in the region recently than they had traditionally done. And I think one of the things that, for us being very keen is we believe that we have a specific edge when it comes to um understanding the idiosyncras- idiosyncrasies. That's how you say it. Idiosyncras- idiosyncrasia is the word in Spanish. I'm sorry. You can say it in um, Spanish. That's
0: fine. How do you say it in Spanish? <laughs> Idiosincratica.
1: Idiosyncrasia.
0: <Incratia? laughs>
1: idiosyncras- I think it's yeah, just as hard. Exactly. Is that
0: it? Did I get it? I think it's uh, looking Gracias. at
1: um so there are yes, think, there are idiots in,
0: in in Kratica in in, in in Latin America that need to be understood and and addressed.
1: absolutely and I believe that today we're the, the best team in Latin America with with like a Latin American team that understands these peculiarities of the region and that is completely committed to building again these completely regulated, compliant fiat on ramps across the region. And and that's taking a lot of time to do in Mexico, but uh, it's a lot of work that we are committing to doing in in other regions. And um, and our hope is that that's going to build a significant moat when these larger players want to come into the region. Mm
0: -hmm. I guess going back to something you said earlier that I thought was pretty interesting, the fact that more people in Mexico own cryptocurrency than stocks. Why do you think that is why why have folks in the country and and to a lesser extent it's a problem here in the United States with a very small portion of the country owning um the vast majority of of the stocks traded, but why do you think people have been more gripped by crypto than traditional investment assets?
1: yeah, I've always thought this was a problem of a disposable income, and in no particular order, but A disposable income and B discrimination. Um, in Mexico, trading stocks is a fairly complex thing to do. You need to get uh, like an account manager that is willing to do that. You know, we don't have like Robinhood or these apps that are common in the United States where you can buy very easily exposure to stocks. So there, the the minimum investments are fairly large, and so you need to be interesting to the broker in order for them to take you as a customer. And so if you don't have enough money or if you don't look the part, then basically they won't open an account for you. And, um, and the second thing that I think is, uh, or the third thing that I think is very important is that we've built our product to be completely digital, which, you know, again, when you're in a jurisdiction like the United States where, where people are used to opening accounts or financial services on their smartphones, this might not seem like a very big thing, but in the case of Mexico, that's just not the case. The, the country is definitely moving in that direction, but we're sort of like pioneers. And when it comes to stock investing, we believe most of the players are still strongly lagging behind. And so you 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 cannot grab a, you can't download an app on your Android and open an account at a stockbroker, you account, and put in let's say twenty dollars. You can definitely do that in pixel. And I think making that completely digital, number one, and then number two, lowering, like, creating a cost structure that allows you to serve those customers very, very efficiently and effectively is the the two things that I think has been able to – has allowed us to grow our our user base a lot larger than sort of the traditional stock market has in Mexico.
0: Very fascinating. And it would be interesting – Into the future, seeing the crypto native firms in Mexico pushing forward the financial services company to roll out more digital products, taking a page from the crypto world's book, so to speak. Absolutely. Is that something you're saying? Do you see uh, our firms reaching out to you and looking at how maybe they could leverage Bitso to drive their products forward? Absolutely. And and we're super interested
1: in having those conversations. I think to the extent that other players can leverage the liquidity, can leverage the platform, the infrastructure that we've built, we would love nothing more than to, than to help them sort of expand their product offerings, solve some of the problems that they have, and get them to be um, more in tune with with crypto and, and and the benefits of the technology, and we do see that we see interest. Um, I think we're still missing, uh, like apart from from these large money transmitters that I that we spent some time talking at the beginning of the of, the, of our conversation, we really haven't seen that many other interesting projects take off. We've seen interest, and and, and that's as, as as far as we've gone so far.
0: Interesting. This has been a really cool conversation um, for me just because so much of what we focus on here at The Block is North America, Sands, Mexico, and European and Asia-focused. So it's it's really awesome to get a voice from outside of those worlds to paint the picture of, of the ecosystem in different places. It's super valuable. I guess my last question for you before we close out would be you're at around 2.3% of the remittance market averaging in 2019. You said this past week was something above 3.5%. Is that correct? Correct. Where are we at the end of 2020?
1: Well, if you allow me to dream, I would hope that we are capturing Upwards of 20% of the remittance corridor.
0: Tan um, loca. We... <laughs>
1: <laughs> we, we think there are significant challenges for that. Liquidity being one of them. Um, the operational overhead being something else. Obviously attracting the players. Making sure that we're servicing the players correctly. But... Um, but we, we're pushing full steam ahead to make that a reality, and the team is completely, completely invested in making this, uh, making this true. And so that's, you know, that's if, if we get there, I think Bitso will have had a tremendous year. And I think m- more broadly than than Bitso, I would say it would be a huge win for the ecosystem because we would have. A very, very, very clear and very strong value proposition for the technology that would be an incredible way to continue to lobby um, our industry's efforts across the board. You know? And I think it would change, it would help us change a lot of r- rhetoric that unfortunately has plagued the industry with, um, with in, in terms of our engagement with regulators.
0: hmm hmm well, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. We appreciate your time, and we will be keeping an eye on what's going on at BITSO going into the rest of the year. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the interest, for the time, and um, and hope we, we do this more often. Thank you so much. Take it easy. Daniel Vogel, CEO and co-founder of BITSO. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Scoop. We hope you tune in next time. And don't forget to subscribe and favorite wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd like to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Cash App. Cash App has been the number one finance app on the App Store for almost two years. It was also the first major peer-to-peer payments app to support Bitcoin. And it's still the fastest and easiest way to turn cash into crypto. Cash App now supports Bitcoin deposits in-app, so be sure to move your Bitcoin from whatever wallet you're using to Cash App. Don't have any to deposit? Cash App is also the most convenient way to instantly buy and sell Bitcoin. No more waiting five days for your ACH transfers to come through. With Cash App, you can buy Bitcoin instantly. When you're ready to take full ownership of your private keys, just use Cash App to scan an external wallet's QR code, It's really that simple. Cash App also comes with standard banking features like direct deposits and others your bank would never even consider, like Cash Card, a customizable debit card that lets you instantly save every time you use it at Lyft, Whole Foods, and places like Chick-fil-A. Download Cash App today from the App Store or Google Play